Reflections on the Poetry of T.S. Eliot The Early Poems by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 3 If you take all that Eliot put into the Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock and you add to that World War I, what you get is Gerontium. It's essentially the same quandary exacerbated profoundly by the experience of World War I and taken to a much deeper depth. But also in the, in the interim, a transition has been occurring in the poet himself. And I want to spend the first part of our session this morning taking a look at that. Years ago, somebody told me that uh, teaching was one of the performing arts. So I'm going to try to, to, to do it that way this morning. In, in the spirit of that, uh, let, me, let me do it this, this way. This is a, an old text, um, uh, The Rise of the Greek Epic by Gilbert Murray. It is the seminal study on Greek epic and particularly Homer's epics. Uh, Gilbert Murray was an Oxford scholar, turn-of-the-century Oxford scholar, whose position was that there was no one Homer but a whole series of poets who had worked over this material over a long period of time until it finally came to its shape in the shape that we have it now. It's not a position that I currently hold, but uh, some do and some don't, and he did. Uh, but he was the preeminent Homer scholar. And this book is, a, is the publication of uh, the uh, Gardner Lane lectures that he gave at Harvard in 1907. And his coming to Harvard, of course, was, a, uh, was an opportunity that had been looked forward to by many people because of his preeminence in the field. And in the course of his lectures, he said the following. Uh, having assumed that, the po that Homer, these epics were not written by one creative genius, he then had to account for the fact that there was so much creative genius in the poem. Uh, could, could a poem of that caliber, caliber be done by committee was essentially his problem. Where does the creative imagination uh, come from when it has so many contributors? So he addressed that question in his lectures, and uh, here's what he said. We who are accustomed to modern literature always associate this sort of imaginative intensity with something personal. We connect it with an artist's individuality or with originality in the sense of, quote, newness. It seems as though, under modern conditions, an artist usually did not feel or imagine intensely unless he was producing some work which was definitively his own and not another's, work which must bear his personal name and be marked by his personal experience or character. Artistic feeling in this matter has not always been the same. Artists have not always wished to stamp their work with their personal characteristics or even their personal name. Artists have sometimes been, as it were, Protestant or iconoclast, unable to worship without asserting themselves against the established ritual of their religion. Sometimes, in happier circumstances, they have accepted and loved the ritual as part of the religion and wrought out their own new works of poetry, not as protest, not as personal outburst, but as glad and nameless offerings made in prescribed form to enhance the glory of the spirit whom they served. With some modification, this seems to have been the case in Greece, in Canaan, in Scandinavia, 
during the periods when great traditional books were slowly growing up. Each successive poet did not assert himself against the tradition, but gave himself up to the tradition and added to its greatness and beauty all that was in him. Well, sitting in the hall when that lecture was delivered was T.S. Eliot. And we can only surmise from Eliot's later writings and from his poetry that he thrilled to hear that and that it left its mark on his sense of what his poetic vocation was. In 1919, Eliot published uh, perhaps his most famous essay, Tradition and Individual Talent, which is a, an appraisal of the same problem that, that Gilbert Murray was dealing with. I'll quote a little section from it. I quote it because uh, it was written in the same year that Gerontion was written, and so comes out of the same concern. Eliot says, We dwell with satisfaction upon the poet's difference from his predecessors, especially his immediate predecessors. We endeavor to find something that can be isolated in order to be enjoyed. Whereas, if we approach a poet without this prejudice, we shall often find that not only the best, but the most individual parts of his work may be those in which the dead poets, his ancestors, assert their immortality most vigorously. He goes on to say, for instance, Shakespeare acquired more essential history from Plutarch than most men could from the whole British Museum. And then what Shakespeare did is he transmitted it into a, poet, into a creative form for the assimilation by his, by his culture. Well, Murray had talked about giving the poets giving themselves up to the tradition, and clearly Eliot is feeling uh, the, the impulse to do that. And what he is saying here in this essay is that, is that a poet who does that will find himself presenting in his most individual and creative work the dead poets, his ancestors, who are through him asserting their immortality. I think it's pretty clear that that's what Eliot wanted to do. Eliot's poetry, what we have to get used to with Eliot's poetry, is that it, uh, its, its analog in, in the world of graphic arts is the collage. A collage of, of, of things taken from all over the culture world, but put together so masterfully, if somewhat, uh, in, in a somewhat fractured way, put together so masterfully as to sum up the tradition. And he was obliged to put it in a fractured way because the tradition for him and his time had become fractured. He goes on in that same essay to say, what happens is a, what happens to the poet? What happens is a continual surrender of the poet as he is at the moment to something which is more valuable. The progress of an artist is a continual self-sacrifice, a continual extinction of personality. And Eliot, it seems early on, was prepared for the process of the continual extinction of his personality uh, in favor of his vocation to pass on the tradition the way Gilbert Murray had talked about it being passed on. Murray had said later in his remarks at Harvard, he said those who wrote the, those great traditional books, quote, steeped themselves to the lips in the spirit, end quote, of the po poetic tradition for which they were giving the modern articulation. 
This is a beautiful phrase. Steeped themselves to the lips in the tradition and then spoke it. See? And it, it's clear to me that Eliot longed to do that, that that was what he saw as his vocation. The problem was that he was living in a cultural environment in which all of the associations, or I shouldn't say all, so many of the traditional associations were very quickly being lost so that he couldn't, he couldn't present, the dead poets couldn't come alive in him without footnote. The wasteland is a famous example of it, you see. And that is a, that's just a symbol of his problem. And so what we have to do is recognize his poetic strategy comes out of the dilemma that he faces. I would like to quote to you something. I have no idea whether Eliot ever wrote th read this or read anything by this scholar, but it's written in the mid-20th century, and it is, so, it is so in keeping with the estimation of things that Eliot came to hold that I want to read it because it, it will provide us with little phrases that will help us understand Gerontian as we, as we get to the poem in, in a minute or two. Uh, the man's name is Sorokin. And uh, he was a Harvard sociologist, a prominent Harvard sociologist. And uh, this is from a piece entitled The Twilight of Our Sensate Culture and Beyond. Here's what he says. Sensate values, he's, th this is prophecy. He's talking about what's, what's ha happening. Sensate values will become still more relative and atomistic until they are ground into dust devoid of any universal recognition and binding power. The boundary line between the true and the false, the right and the wrong, the beautiful and ugly, positive and negative values will be obliterated increasingly until mental, moral, aesthetic, and social anarchy reigns supreme. The magnificent contractual socio-cultural house built by Western man during the preceding centuries will collapse. Wars, revolutions, revolts, disturbances, brutality will be rampant. Bellum omnium contra omnes, a war of all against all. Man against man, class, nation, creed, and race against class, nation, creed, and race will raise its head. The family, as a sacred unit of husband and wife, of parents and children, will continue to disintegrate. Divorces and separations will increase until any profound difference between socially sanctioned marriages and illicit sex relationships disappears. The sensate supersystem of our culture will become increasingly a shapeless cultural dumping place, pervaded by syncretism of undigested cultural elements. That's a phrase that gives you Eliot's problem uh, in a nutshell. A syncretism of undigested cultural elements, as Eliot says in the Wasteland, a heap of broken images. Pervaded by a syncretism of undigested cultural elements, devoid of any unity and individuality. Christianity will be replaced by a multitude of the most atrocious concoctions of fragments of science, shreds of philosophy, stewed in the inchoate mass of magical beliefs and ignorant superstitions. End quote. Didn't exactly hold anything back. This is a Harvard sociologist. What he's describing is what Girard calls the crisis of distinctions. And Eliot, sensitive to this development long before a lot of other people became aware of it, was keen 
about how, what, it, what its impact was on his poetic vocation. It was for him a very unpropitious time to try to write immortal poetry. He had to develop a new strategy if he was to fulfill his vocation. As I say, I think he saw his vocation as living up to the, to the Gilbert Murray description of the traditional poet. So he had to develop new strategies for, to meet the circumstances. Let me quote to you one sentence out of the most recent Encyclopedia Britannica about T.S. Eliot. In 1919, he published poems which contained the poem Gerontion, a meditative interior monologue in blank verse. Nothing like this poem had appeared in English, period, end quote. The reason nothing like it had appeared in English is because nobody had been forced by the cultural circumstances to resort to the strategies that Eliot had to resort to. Uh, those who faced the poetic dilemma uh, perhaps did not face it as, uh, as determined to write immortal poetry as Eliot was. And so he had to rewrite the conventions of poetry in order to, to uh, accomplish what he set out to do. Garantian is a fragmentary poem which makes the fragmentary nature of the contemporary cultural experience palpable. So it's like a collage, as his poems would be uh, from then on. But the price he paid was that it didn't make sense in any conventional sense of meaning. It didn't have a conventional, didn't convey for a conventional reader of poetry the sense of its meaning. I want to... Uh, uh, quote a piece of, of Eliot's literary criticism. As you probably know, Eliot wrote a lot of literary criticism uh, and some theological things later on as well. And what I'm going to quote from sort of falls somewhere in between the two. Uh, but in, in uh, one of his later writings, in 1956, he wrote an essay in which he said, quote, the best of my literary criticism is a byproduct of my private poetry workshop. Its merits and its limitations can be fully appreciated only when it is considered in relation to the poetry I have written myself. So he said, I cranked out all that literary criticism in order to work out my poetic dilemma in prose before I turned around and made it into poems. Well, in light of that, then we can say, if we want to understand Eliot's poetry, he's his own best literary critic. We could go to his literary criticism and use it to turn around and analyze his poetic canon. Because in uh, Garantian, uh, Eliot uh, alludes quite uh, specifically uh, to a sermon by uh, Lancelot Andrews. Lancelot Andrews was the, was the Bishop of Winchester, died in 1625, and uh, was famous for his sermons, which had been written down and published. And uh, Eliot had written in... Um, I don't have the year right now, but Eliot had written at some point, I think in 1931-32, thereabouts, a, a, uh, a piece on uh, Lancelot Andrews' sermons. And I want to quote what he said about Lancelot Andrews' sermons and then turn around and apply it uh, to, to his own work. And I think it'll be the best introduction to Garantian that we can have. Um, I should point out that the first thing Eliot is going to do in this passage I'm going to quote, which is something he does occasionally in his poetry, 
is he is going to uh, demonstrate what he is saying. He's going to not say it only, but say it and show it at the same time. And it's kind of funny the way he does it. Uh, but you'll you'll you can you can already feel a resonance between what he's saying here and what uh, Sorokin said in that passage I quoted earlier. So that's Eliot says this. To persons whose minds are habituated to feed on the vague jargon of our time, when we have a vocabulary for everything and exact ideas about nothing, when a word half understood, torn from its place in some alien or half-formed science as of psychology, conceals from both writer and reader the meaninglessness of a statement, when all dogma is in doubt, except the dogmas of science of which we have read in newspapers, when the language of theology itself, under the influence of an undisciplined mysticism of popular philosophy, tends to become the language of tergiversation, word means uh, intentional ambiguity to avoid being pinned down, right? <clears throat> All of that, in a world that's like that, he says, Andrews may seem pedantic and verbal. Now, there's a little joke in that because Eliot has just seemed pedantic and verbal <laughs> in order to make the point. He sort of take, he put in that word tergiversation, I'm sure, in order to load up this last phrase to seem pedantic and verbal. And then he goes on to say, it is only when we have saturated ourselves in his prose, speaking of Andrews now, followed the movement of his thought that we find his examination of words terminating in the ecstasy of assent. Keep that phrase in mind. Andrews takes a word and derives the world from it, squeezing and squeezing the word until it yields a full juice of meaning which we should never have supposed any word to possess. End quote. Now, let me just go back and change a couple of words in this passage and reread it. To persons whose minds are habituated to feed on the vague jargon of our time, when we have a vocabulary for everything and exact ideas about nothing, when a word half understood, torn from its place in some alien or half-formed science as of psychology, conceals from both writer and reader the meaninglessness of a statement, when all dogma is in doubt except those dogmas of science of which we have read in the newspapers, when the language of theology itself, under the influence of an undisciplined mysticism of popular philosophy, tends to become a language of tergiversation, Eliot may seem pedantic and verbal. It is only when we have saturated ourselves in his poetry, followed the movement of his thought, that we find his examination of words terminating in the ecstasy of assent. And, excuse me, Eliot takes a word and derives the world from it, squeezing and squeezing the word until it yields a full juice of meaning which we should never have supposed any word to possess. It's the best introduction to Eliot's poetry, as far as I'm concerned. It comes from the pen of Eliot, talking about somebody who was, for him in this respect, a model. If we insert Eliot in that and we say, Eliot takes a word and derives the world from it, squeezing and squeezing the word until it yields the full juice of its meaning, uh, first word we'll come to, of course, the title of the poem, Garantian. Garantian means little old man. 
we'll see as the poem goes on that Eliot has squeezed that word. Uh, the poem, in a way, is one long squeezing of that word to try to get at the problem. Now, the problem the poem is dealing with is the problem of proof rock exacerbated by World War I. The title of the poem tells you the problem, gives a hint of what the problem is as, as Eliot sees it. The Old Man. And the epigraph is from Shakespeare's Measure for Measure. Thou hast nor youth nor age, but as it were, an after-dinner sleep, dreaming of both. So a situation in which uh, youth is gone, old age in any, in any profound sense of what it might bring, has been avoided by recourse to a kind of slumber. Well, that's a description of the condition that Eliot is facing in the poem and, and trying to uh, bring to consciousness. So we'll spend a little bit of time on these first two lines. Here I am, an old man in a dry month, being read to by a boy waiting for rain. Now, it is a monologue, as people have noted, by an old man. But we should... Already note here, and when we get into the wasteland, of course, we'll, we'll, Eliot will make it explicit. And that is that the word I, capital I, is elusive in Eliot's poetry. We don't always know who the I is, who the speaker is, or as I said a couple of weeks ago, where the voice is coming from. The, the, the nature of the I changes. In a sense, it's a, a, one way of understanding it is that the nature of the I that we all speak changes. We can speak some silly little superficial I, like I want or gimme or something. Or we can speak another kind of I, which is I believe or I am or I, you see, some more profound I. Uh, or occasionally some other more profound I could come through me. And the poets, I mean the uh, prophets, the Old Testament prophets, they would say, I this and I that, but then they would always say, thus saith Yahweh, so that it was Yahweh's I that was coming through. Well, none of this is made explicit in Eliot's poetry, but I've I just put us on guard. We don't always know who this I is, and occasionally it can change from one line to the next, and we have to be aware of the, of the, uh, the idiom and so on that may give us some hint of at what depth this I is being spoken. Here I am, an old man in a dry month, being read to by a boy waiting for rain. The two, two images right away. One is old man, and the other is parched landscape. Not quite maybe parched yet, but clearly uh, a dry month waiting for rain. Now this, of course, will be a feature of Eliot's poetry, a major feature of the wasteland, and so on. Here I am. When Yahweh called Abraham, Abraham's response was, here I am. When Yahweh called Moses, Moses' response was, here I am. Here I am in the traditional, we're talking about a collage now, in the traditional world, here I am is, the term Elliot used referring to uh, Andrews, was the ecstasy of ascent. Here I am, Lord, is the ecstasy of ascent. In 1 Samuel, it's used again in a way that's even more reminiscent of these lines. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to Yahweh in the presence of Eli. It was rare for Yahweh to speak in those days. Visions were uncommon. So again, this is this 
first part of First Samuel is very appropriate uh, to our time. One day it happened that Eli, the old high priest at Shiloh, Eli was lying down in his room. His eyes were beginning to grow dim. He could no longer see, which is why you would have a boy read to you, right, in the Elliot poem. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, however, and Samuel was lying in the sanctuary of Yahweh where the ark of God was when Yahweh called Samuel, Samuel. He answered, Here I am. Then he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, since you called me. Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. So there you have the old man and the boy. The boy is hearing... You see, it's coming through the boy, but it's left to the old man to interpret it. It requires both of those features. The, the youth has to be able to hear it, and this, the, both of these features are in each one of us. The, the, the boy has to hear it, the youth has to hear it, and the elder has to interpret it. And that's how it's transmitted. That's how it's infused into a life or into a culture. And the breakdown comes when either the boy can't hear it or the old man can't interpret it. So let me go back to the first, uh, I mean, to the, to the most important aspect of that line, and that is the word old man, implicit in the title. This, I think, unquestionably is a Pauline reference. It's not a reference to chronological age. Paul has a phrase, the Greek is... Paleos Anthropos, which means the old man, the old humanity, the old man, the old Adam, in a sense, uh, the old Anthropos, the old anthropology, uh, the old way of being. And I think it's clear that's what this poem is about. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he says this, you must give up your old way of life. You must put aside your old self, which gets corrupted by following illusory desires. Your mind must be renewed by a spiritual revolution so that you can put on a new self. And he uses this term here, paleos anthropos, uh, the old self must be put aside. I want to just threaten you with the Girardian interpretation of this. We've been through this many times, but uh, I think it's interesting. Um, there are places in Paul's writings where he, he seems to have an appreciation of uh, the kind of dynamic that Girard's onto, and this is one of them. He, the feature of the old self that he says must be left behind is this. The old self gets corrupted by following illusory desires. And as you know, Girard's interpretation is that uh, mimetic desire is at the heart of our cultural delusional system and of our cultural violence. So the problem with the old self, the paleos anthropos, is that it gets, it gets caught up in illusory desires. Now, the word epithumius apetes is the, the, the two words meaning illusory desires. And here is what one... Greek scholar says about that phrase. The phrase in Ephesians 4.22, quote, deceitful lust, in the authorized version, quote, 
lust of deceit in the Revised Standard Version signifies lust excited by deceit, of which deceit is the source of strength, not lust deceitful in themselves. This may be a little complicated, but it's interesting in that he's saying that what Paul is referring to is the kind of desire that is actually, that draws its, its uh, juices from delusion and deceit and secrecy. What Girard is saying is that all desires do that because they are all secretly mimetic. I don't want to get into that today because today's not one of those days, but ha I wanted to put it on the record that Paul has a phrase here that's very provocative in that respect. That is the feature of the old anthropos that must be abandoned. The, the deceitfulness of our desirousness was saying that Eliot uh, uses the uh, collage method of his in poetry. A.C. Benson wrote a biography of Edward Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald is the translator of the of the Rubaiyat. And here is a, a line from that biography about Fitzgerald's old age. Here he sits in a dry month, old and blind, being read to by a country boy, longing for rain. It's absolutely clear where Eliot got it. Absolutely clear where he got it. What's less clear is what he did with it once he got it. You see? And that's, that's where the footnotes ha don't, don't tell us a thing. That's where we have to turn to the, to the feeling of the poetry itself. The reason he takes these things is because he's working with collage. He is trying to present the culture to the culture. Now, Eliot could have, with a little bit of effort, could have come up with something more evocative out of, it, the pen of, out of his own pen. Why didn't he do that? Because that's not what he's trying to do. The fact that he is using these pieces for his collage is part of the message. You see? This is describing Fitzgerald. Now, what do we know, what we know about Fitzgerald is that he was a lonely recluse, that he had a, the, a very brief marriage late in life that hardly lasted beyond the ceremony, that he freely adapted, that he published anonymous works, that is to say he met the Gilbert Murray requirement, that he was a translator, and when he translated, he translated very freely. And all of these things sort of apply to Eliot in a way. I imagine when Eliot read this biography, there were f features of, of Edward Fitzgerald's uh, literary career that spoke to Eliot. And then he finds that he's alone, being read to by a boy in his old age. Uh, and he finds that image profound enough to tra transfer into the poetry. Fitzgerald was aloof from the historical urgencies of his time. He was, he was a wealthy man who essentially, uh, upon graduating from Trinity College, uh, retired to his manor house and, uh, and uh, puttered around for the rest of his life in gardening and literary pursuits. So the next lines in the poetry are, I was neither at the hot gates, nor fought in the warm rain, nor knee-deep in the salt marsh, heaving a cutlass, bitten by flies, fought. The hot gates is a reference to Thermopylae, which is a pass in central Greece 
through which the barbarians from the north, from the Greek perspective, the barbarians from the north uh, had access to the Greek city-states. So that battles were fought there over the centuries between what were what was regarded as civilization and barbarism. And again, Eliot goes out of his way to take a piece of the tradition and use it to speak of this problem of not dealing with that pro the dilemma of civilization versus barbarism. So the, the voice that's speaking in this poem is a voice who has not engaged in that contest between civilization and barbarism. My house is a decayed house. And here's the most shocking and disturbing line in the whole poem. And the Jew squats on the windowsill, the owner. Spawned in some estamine of Antwerp, blistered in Brussels, patched and peeled in London. Very hard to understand this, and it's very troubling. We have to uh, work on it a little bit. First of all, my house is a decayed house, and, and that's the cultural house. Sorokin had said, the magnificent contractual socio-structural house built by Western man during the preceding centuries will collapse. So the old one says, the old anthropos says, my house is a decayed house. The Jew squats on the windowsill, the owner. This is where we have to remember that the eye of this poem is not the eye of T.S. Eliot. And what Eliot is doing with a very unflinching determination is picturing the problem. First of all, notice the Jew is not capitalized. Eliot knows very well how to use lowercase and capital letters in his writings. And so if, and he uses them with great nuance. So you keep your eye on that. And I think that's one of the ways he lets us know what he's talking about here. First of all, the very fact that the speaker notices that the owner calls attention to the fact that the owner is a Jew is itself symptomatic of the cultural crisis. Again, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul is writing, Paul, the preeminent Jew, now become the apostle to the Gentiles, but speaking here as a Jew, is writing to the Gentiles in the Ephesian church. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, the Gentiles, that used to be so far apart from us, the Jews, have been brought very close by the blood of Christ. For he is the peace between us, and has made the two into one, and broken down the barrier which used to keep them apart, actually destroying in his own person the hostility caused by the rules and decrees of the law. This was to create one single new man in himself out of the two of them by restoring peace through the cross to unite them both in a single body and reconcile them with God. In the Paul's time, the, the ultimate distinction was between Jews and Gentiles. That was the profound distinction. If that one could be reconciled, all the rest were, were easy. 
And Paul says that one is reconciled. So that we no longer have Jew or Gentile, male or female, this or that. These, In other words, none of that holds. The new man doesn't operate on those kind of categories. The fact that this old man is peering out of his decaying house and noticing with some detectable resentment that the owner is a Jew says a number of things. But one of the things it says is that that reconciliation is not in place, is not working. You know, the prophets were always accused of collaborating with the disaster that they foretold. In a way, we could read this passage in Eliot and accuse him, as the prophet's accusers accuse them, of somehow being part of the eventual mentality that produced the Holocaust. I'd, I think it's an unfair accusation. What he wants to do is to picture the spiritual condition of the old Anthropos. And the spiritual condition is impotence, frustration, and, what, and, and, a, and a growing sense of what Nietzsche called resentment. And the fact that the old Gerontian can look out and see the Jew squatting on the windowsill, the owner, is symptomatic of the cultural crisis. That is to say, those who are the, those who are the old anthropos finally become so uh, frustrated by it that they begin to look for the scapegoat. See? And I think it's the it's noticing Eliot noticing with a steely eye that those trapped in the old anthropos are already looking around for a scapegoat. He even mentions a goat two lines later. Uh, the goat coughs at night on the, in the field overhead. Well, goats don't cough. You see, Jews squatting on windowsills cough. And the Jew, I think, is the goat. You get this, this little thing here is filled with a very dangerous situation which will come back around in the poem when he says, these tears are shaken from a wrath-bearing tree, and don't you forget it. Signs are taken for wonders. That's the problem. Signs are taken for wonders. Signs are taken for wonders, seems to me, as a reference to the externalization of the civilization. Uh, the signs are external to the truth. We are a civilization capable of producing all kinds of external wonders. And we attribute to that ability a spiritual significance which it does not earn necessarily. Signs are taken for wonders. We would have a sign, in quotation marks, we would have a sign. The word, within a word, unable to speak a word, swaddled with darkness... In the juvescence of the year came Christ the tiger. And we'll follow that. I want to interrupt right there and go back. We would have a sign. Eliot has conflated three 
New Testament references here. In Matthew, Then some scribes and Pharisees spoke up, Master, they said, We would like to see a sign from you. And he replied, It is an evil and adulterous generation that asks for a sign. In the Gospel of Luke, the the angel speaks to the shepherds and says at the birth of Jesus, Here is a sign for you. You will find an infant wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now we have the estamine in the manger and the swaddled in darkness uh, and the reference to sign. And then, of course, in John, the prologue to John's gospel, the word is made flesh. We would have a sign, the word within a word, unable to speak a word, swaddled with darkness. Now, the word infant means non-speaking. The, the etymology of the word infant means unable to speak, you see. This is a culture world relying on signs, but there is the sign, the real sign, is an infant unable to speak the word, the, the spermatic word of creation itself, the word that creates the new anthropos, which comes in the form of an infant, that is to say, one who cannot speak the word. This also captures Eliot's poetic problem. So the sign is a word within a word, unable to speak the word, swaddled with darkness. Well, in the midst of all of that, in the juvescence of the year, came Christ the tiger. In the juvescence of the year came Christ the tiger in depraved May. Depraved means perverted. In depraved May, dogwood, chestnut, dogwood and chestnut, flowering Judas, to be eaten, to be divided, to be drunk among whispers. Eliot has a poem entitled Whispers of Immortality. It's a reference to a Eucharistic uh, theme here. Depraved May is a time of dogwood, chestnut, flowering Judas. The dogwood is the tree Christ was crucified on by legend. And uh, as a result of that uh, offense, the dogwood became shrunk from being a very large tree to being a very small tree, and its petals were then marked with the wounds. Uh, a depraved May uh, in which the, the, the flowering of the crucifixion goes on in a, in a sort of unconscious way. The chestnut and the flowering Judas. And I think everything is loaded up on the last thing in that line, and that is flowering Judas. The Judas tree is, the, is by, again, by legend, is the tree that Judas hung himself on. And the depraved May is one... The line that starts with the depraved May ends with the flowering Judas. The flowering Judas is a, is a pseudo-rejuvenation that ends in suicide. It is the refusal of the Christian invitation that ends in suicide. This is from a 1931 essay by Eliot. The world is trying the experiment of attempting to form a civilized but non-Christian mentality. The experiment will fail. But we must be very patient in awaiting its collapse. Meanwhile, redeeming the time so that the faith may be preserved alive through the dark ages before us. 
to renew and rebuild civilization and save the world from suicide. The Renaissance, the Enlightenment, and modern ideas of progress are all summed up for Eliot in the term Judas tree, the flowering of the Judas tree. It seems like progress. It seems like enlightenment. It seems like renaissance. It's the flowering of the Judas tree. To the extent that it is attempting, it is Eliot's position on this thing, to the extent that it is attempting to chart another course independent of the real truth of the dogwood tree, it will become the Judas tree. I think there's something here in depraved May because May is an equivocation. May is not yes or no if we take it as a verb form. It is depraved May. You cannot have genuine rejuvenation uh, without a firm ecstasy of ascent or a firm commitment and affirmation. Uh, the depraved May produces only uh, dogwood chestnut and flowering Judas. That's the kind of stuff that's going on, passing itself off as cultural rejuvenation. Christ the Tiger coming to present the Eucharistic opportunity. And now we get four figures that describe the cultural problem in the absolutely the most economical of poetic terms. By Mr. Silvero. With caressing hands at Limoges, who walked at night in the next room. By Hakagawa, bowing among the Titians. By Madame de Turnquist in the dark room, shifting the candles. Fräulein von Kolp, who turned in the hall, one hand on the door. This, is, this represents the whole world. The whole world of the Western cultural tradition. To whom Christ the Tiger is offering the Eucharistic banquet. And this is their response to the Eucharistic banquet that is being offered by the Christian dispensation. Mr. Silvero, his name sounds like money. Mr. Silvero, with caressing hands, at Limoges, who walked at night among the uh, at night in the next room. Limoges is a place in France famous for its its uh, enamelware and chinaware delicate uh, pieces, the most treasured pieces, those from 16th, 17th century with detailed pictures from religious and classical themes. So I think what we're invited to see here is a Mr. Silvero caressing the signs that have been taken for wonders. That is to say, it is, the, it is what those themes mean that is the real treasure of the culture. But Mr. Silvero knowing a good investment when he sees one, is caressing the mere artifacts and is un, has no access to the stuff itself. Again, this is an echo of an Eliot preoccupation. Remember Matthew and Arnold sitting on the shelves and in the room the women come and go talking of Michelangelo? Same exact problem here. That is to say, trying to get at it in the only way he knows, which is to, to buy it or sell it, See? and caressing it, but also in the room the women come and go. There's a restlessness there. So we get Mr. Silvero with caressing hands at Limoges who walked at night in the next room. And you get a sense of how restless this whole enterprise is. 
by Hakagawa bowing among the Titians, a Japanese coming into the culture, appreciate again the Titians represent the, the paintings typically represent religious or classical themes. And here is a Japanese coming from outside the cultural uh, the culture world and bowing in a typically Japanese way with, uh, with reverence, not to the Titians, but among them. In other words, there's something's not crossing the divide here. There is some kind of vague sense of reverence, but it's uh, like Mr. Silverose, it's not connecting. By Madame de Turnquist in the dark room shifting the candles. This is a this has a religious but a religious in a in a uh, superstitious sort of way reference. Uh, Madame de Turnquist is a sort of medium apparently. She we'll see more of her her descendants when we get to the wasteland. She senses the spiritual need, but her only response to it is some kind of silly mediumistic shifting of the candles around. Again, shifting is a restlessness image as well. But she's in the dark room having a little seance, see. And then Fräulein von Kolp, who turned in the hall, one hand on the door. This is the most, this is the one who is most available for a transformation. And that's because, and I think her name is chosen carefully, uh, Kolp uh, gives us a, a hint of the Latin word for sin, culpability. That is to say, she, like, like uh, Mary Magdalene, uh, may be closest to a real conversion. That's what the conversion is, the word for turning. She is turned, who turned in the hall. She's very likely a, uh, involved in illicit sex of some kind, a prostitute sort of image. She's in the hall of the brothel. Turned in the hall, one hand on the door, and I think, given what comes shortly here after in the poem, a reference to the possibility of a conversion. You see, lust, as the medievals understood and as Dante so well understood and Eliot learned from him, lust is the most forgivable sin. Pride is the least forgivable sin. Uh, so those, Fräulein von Kulp is, is close enough to the culpability of her, of her life to be potentially available for the conversion and the opening of the door. The others, uh, much much more distracted from that and, and separated from that possibility. The summary of this section is, Vacant shuttles weave the wind. I have no ghost. An old man in a drafty house under a windy knob. All of that wind image. The Holy Spirit has become part of the torture. The presence of the Spirit is, is torture. I have no ghosts, the Holy Ghost. I am an old man in a drafty house. There's no spirit in here, but there is a draft. See, There's a cold draft under a windy knob. Perhaps here a pun on the handle on the door. In other words, all the resources are there. It's like the estimine in Antwerp. The word within a word, unable to speak the word. All the resources are there, but it's not connecting. 
After such knowledge, what forgiveness? And this, I think, is reference to the new tree of knowledge. The old tree of knowledge was the knowledge of the difference between good and evil, but the new tree of knowledge is the opposite of that. Sorokin had said, the boundary line between the true and the false, the right and the wrong, the beautiful and ugly, positive and negative values will be obliterated increasingly until mental, moral, aesthetic, and social anarchy reign supreme. The new tree of knowledge is destroying all those distinctions. It's the crisis of distinctions. And the spirit, which the scriptures say will come and lead you, uh, will guide you in all things and lead you to the truth, is not being experienced. So after such knowledge, what forgiveness? Think now. History has many cunning passages, contrived corridors and issues, deceives with whispering ambitions, guides us by vanities. Think now. She gives when our attention is distracted, and what she gives gives with such supple confusions that the giving famishes the craving. Gives too late what's not believed in or still believed in memory only, reconsidered passion. Gives too soon into weak hands what, what's thought can be dispensed with until the refusal propagates a fear. Think neither fear nor courage saves us. Unnatural vices are fathered by our heroism. Virtues are forced upon us by our impudent crimes. These tears are shaken from the wrath-bearing tree. It's a wilderness. History has become a wilderness in which one cannot see any direction. And then the, the, the stark warning at the end is these tears are shaken from the wrath-bearing tree. I think that's a reference to the poison tree of Blake, a little poem that goes like this. I was angry with my friend. I told my wrath. My wrath did end. I was angry with my foe. I told it not. My wrath did grow. I watered it in fears, night and morning with my tears, and I sunned it with smiles and with soft, deceitful wiles, and it grew both day and night till it bore an apple bright. And my foe beheld it shine, and he knew that it was mine. This is mimetic desire, mimetic rivalry, the new tree of knowledge. And into my garden stole when the night had veiled the pole, mystification, she said. In the morning, glad I see my foe outstretched beneath the tree. Well, it's a wrath-bearing tree, and it involves that kind of mystification and the death of the foe. Anyway, uh, let's... That, we could go off on that. Maybe we'll come back to... All of a sudden, there's a break. The tiger springs in the new year, not the juvescence of the year, which Christ the tiger comes, and then there is the flowering Judas and, Doc, and Mr. Silvero and all the rest. But now, the tiger springs, pun on the word springs, in the new year, and here is where the whole poem turns, and that is we have the word, the, the first person plural, us. Us he devours. It's a Eucharistic, turning of the Eucharistic tables. Until finally Christ the tiger devours us. We, now we're talking, we 
have not reached conclusion when I stiffen in a rented house. I skipped a phrase there. Think at last. In the other, what we just read, he says, think, think now, think now. But this is another, now he's broken through to someplace else. Think at last. We have not reached conclusion when I stiffen in a rented house. Reference there to rigor mortis. But we have not reached conclusion. I think at last, I, and now this is a new I, this is one infused with Christ or one who has been swallowed by Christ. I have not made this show purposelessly, and it was not by any concitation of the backward devils. That's a, I think that's a reference to the, the fortune tellers in Dante's Inferno who have, who have their heads turned around and who have to walk backwards. Uh, this is not some cheap fortune-telling thing. This is not some silly prophecy. This has purpose, this prophetic word here. I would meet you upon this honestly. I that was near your heart was removed therefrom. Now, I think this, now this I has to do with the history of the Christian movement. It has to do with having a real contact with the meaning of Christianity. I that was near your heart was removed therefrom to lose beauty in terror, terror in inquisition. And that line, I think, is a reference to the history of the church over the centuries, to lose beauty in terror. Think of the Enlightenment, you see. Close the churches and set up the guillotines. And terror in the Inquisi in Inquisition, and think of the uh, the Crusades and the Inquisition and all of that, all of that stuff. I that was near your heart was removed therefrom to lose beauty and terror, terror in Inquisition. I have lost my passion, and this now is the voice of an age. I have lost my passion. It's not the. It's the voice of the Western soul saying, and the pun on passion is the passion story, the passion of Christ and its redemptive implication. I have lost my passion. Why should I need to keep it since what is kept must be adulterated? I have lost my passion. In Mr. Eliot's Sunday morning service, one other of Eliot's poems, he speaks in the, of, in the beginning was the word, and then he says, and at the menstrual turn of time, a little change of menstrual, but same implication, mm -hmm. at the menstrual turn of time produced enervate origin. Origin was a Christian, a theologian, who performed self-castration on himself, <laughs> uh, trying to live up to the biblical injunction uh, in a literal way. Uh, and Eliot makes a point in his earlier poem uh, that, 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 that that's a symbol of what church can do uh, sometimes. It loses its passion, fearing that if it keeps passion, it will be adulterated. But it seems to me that Eliot's playing on the pun of adulterated. 
It has to, the passion has to grow adult or else become adulterated or else be lost. And it is the becoming adult of the passion that the challenge of maturity, uh, it's the bringing of that passion into religious adulthood that is the challenge for Gerontia. But once we've lost passion, here's what happens. I have lost my sight, smell, hearing, taste, and touch. How should I use them for closer contact? And now the whole poem begins to disperse. It's like the poem, suddenly the center of gravity uh, pales and the whole poem starts to just disperse into the ether. So what happens when, when we lose that? Same thing that happened to Prufrock. Remember Prufrock? Well, here's, this sounds like Prufrock. These with a thousand small deliberations protract the profit of their chilled delirium, excite the membrane when the sense has cooled with pungent sauces. Prufrock says, I will wear the bottoms of my trousers roll or I will wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. In other words, to make up for the fact that life has gone out, uh, we have to uh, uh, eat uh, spicy foods. To make up for the fact that we can no longer taste. To make up for the fact that we have not eaten at the Eucharistic banquet, we have to spice the food up. Multiply variety in a wilderness of mirrors. Multiply variety in a wilderness of mirrors. But then the prophetic voice comes back. What will the spider do? Suspend its operations? Will the weevil delay? Notice the pun on weevil. W-E-E-V-I-L. Will it delay? Remember, Gerontion looks out and starts resenting the Jew squatting on the windowsill. And then Elliot has already said, these tears, by the way, folks, are shaken from, you better believe it, a wrath-bearing tree. See, it's that kind of, there's that kind of thread going through here. Will the weevil delay? Debayash, Freshka, Mrs. Kamel, whirled beyond the circuit of the shuddering bear in fractured atoms. Uh, there's a literary reference to sinners being punished by being dispersed out in beyond the, beyond the orbit of Ursa Major. Uh, just, you know, no gravity, loss of gravity. Beyond the circuit of the shuddering bear in fractured atoms, Sorokin had said, sensate values will become still more relative and atomistic until they are ground into dust devoid of any universal recognition and binding power. Gull against the wind. I feel the spirit here that he cannot connect with. Gull against the wind in the windy straits of Belle Isle or running on the horn, white feathers in the snow, the gulf claims. The gulf claims. And an old man driven by the trades to a sleepy corner. He's talking about the trade winds, but you see the trades is driven by the practical busyness of life, driven by all of the externality into a sleepy corner. Tenants of the house, thoughts of a dry brain in a dry season. Tenants of the house, renters in the cultural house. 
a house owned and operated by Pleiosanthropos, the old man. Now, before we leave this, I just want to go back and say what makes this poem poignant is this is the high point in the poem. Remember in Prufrock, Prufrock's there's the point where he says, would it have been worth it to say, I am Lazarus, come from the dead? And then he, it's, it's past. It didn't happen. But we can't feel the power of the poem unless we feel that Prufrock had that experience and didn't quite follow through with it. And likewise, Jeronchen has this experience. Suddenly he says, us and we, and he says, we have not reached conclusion when I stiffen in a rented house. That's realizing something much bigger than Western civilization. And it's realizing his connection with something really cosmic. I have not made this show purposelessly. I would meet you on this honestly. I that was near your heart was removed therefrom to lose beauty and terror and so on. There's a high point. But then it's, it registers how this was lost. And we start seeing it go from beauty to terror, terror inquisition, the loss of passion, and the whole thing comes back down to losing sight, smell, sense, and so on, and back into this hall of mirrors, of multiply variety in a wilderness of mirrors. It's the same, it's the same trajectory that Prufrock, his course, you see, there's the moment when he feels that, but he can't, he can't bring it to, to consequence and, uh, and make it, make it uh, consequential in his, in his life or in the culture. And so it kind of trails back off. So the poem, I think, reaches his peak and backs away from it. And that's where it's, in a way, it's personal tragedy is. It's a, it's a tremendous missed opportunity. We get a sense in the middle of the poem what it feels like to discover the new... As Paul says, the new man is the one who is reconciled, that is to say, in communion. That's what the Eucharistic image is all about, to be in communion. And for a moment in the middle of this poem, this voice is in communion with others and with, and with the heritage and with future generations and all of that, in the same way that Prufrock longed to be in communion with the woman. But it's very short-lived, and, and after that it starts disintegrating again into the, into the place of, into the gulf, the gulf claims. So it ends, uh, not with a bang, but a whimper. It's the way the poems tend to end. This is the end of the Reflections on the Early Poems of T.S. Eliot by Gil Bailey. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.